Alpha Male Entertainment Network. Broadcasting from Humidor 1A in the cigar city of Tampa, Florida. U.S.A. Welcome to the Cigar Dave Show, your weekly excursion into the world of cigars, spirits, and diversions. The cigar and pleasure-friendly hotlines are open. 877-DAVE-007. Now, fire up a cigar and pour yourself a cocktail. It's time for the General, General Cigar, cigar Dave. Dave. It is a very significant weekend. Monday is Memorial Day. Memorial Day weekend. Everybody thinks it's the unofficial start of summer, which it really is. But too many people forget the true meaning of Memorial Day. Remembering those men and women that laid down their lives for us. Remembering those men and women who are no longer with us that did put their life on the line over the nation's 200-plus year history. We don't say Happy Memorial Day on the Cigar Dave Show. We observe Memorial Day. I am so offended when I see these Happy Memorial Day sales. We remember and observe Memorial Day properly. We shall do it today once again on the Cigar Dave Show. Long Ash greetings and salutations, a Long Ash snappy salute semper delictatio. Always pleasure, long live the Alpha, make America great again, again. Screw the enemies of pleasure, screw the Chinese Communist Party, and screw the Chinese Communist Party Wuhan virus. As always, it is your global five-star general and Alpha male-in-chief. Today coming to you from a classified location, we have moved Command Center Alpha in anticipation of this Memorial Day weekend. Now, I should tell you that our Memorial Day tradition the last five years has been to conduct Memorial Day broadcast maneuvers from the Bad Monkey Military Bar in Ybor City, the traditional and historic cigar-making area of the Cigar City of Tampa. The owner of the Bad Monkey is retired General Dave Scott. He was in charge of MacDill Air Force Base for many years. Stayed in Tampa after he retired, opened up the Bad Monkey. It is a phenomenal place with incredible military memorabilia, military theme. And every year, the week before Memorial Day, the SOFIC Conference, the Special Operations Forces Industry Conference, takes place in the Cigar City of Tampa. And we have access to incredible guests who are in Tampa for the week for the conference and the convention, displaying their wares, dealing with members of the military, MacDill Air Force Base, Southern Command, all the various uh, uh, special commands that are within the country. They all converge on Tampa. And we have had some absolutely phenomenal, spectacular guests. Now, this year, the SOFIC conference was canceled because of the CCP Wuhan virus. So we will not be conducting our normal broadcast maneuvers from the Bad Monkey, but that will not stop us from replaying some incredible interviews that we have uh, completed over the last five years from the Bad Monkey during the SOFIC conference. We've got an incredible lineup of guests that I want to share with you. We will talk with General Dave Scott. 
well-known member of the Tampa community, retired as the General McDill Air Force Base. As I said, he is the proprietor of the Bad Monkey Military Bar in Ybor City. Scotty Neal, who is one of the first horse soldiers to go into Afghanistan, came back. Not only did he defend the American dream, he is now living the American dream as an incredible entrepreneur with his horse soldier bourbon. There's about 10 retired military men that are involved with that venture and his partners. He's been a frequent guest. We'll talk with him. We'll talk with Rear Admiral Brian Losey, who at the time was the Rear Admiral in charge of the Navy, Navy Special Warfare Command, the Navy SEALs. Incredible man, incredible conversation, loves cigars. And finally, Dr. Jim Mitchell, a name you've probably seen him on Fox News many times and some of the other network newscasts. He was the chief interrogator working for the CIA as an advisor interrogating many terrorists down at Gitmo, Guantanamo Bay, including KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And for the first time ever on broadcast radio, we will play additional excerpts from an interview we conducted. He was so interesting, we didn't have time to get all of our conversation in to our broadcast at the time, which I think was two or three years ago. We did a special podcast. We are going to play today excerpts from that podcast. Dr. Jim Mitchell, absolutely incredible. So today on this Memorial Day, we will look back over the last five years at some incredible guests. And we pay proper tribute to the men and women of our military. And I remind you once again, do not say happy Memorial Day. It is observing Memorial Day. And on Monday, please stop at noon or any time. Just reflect for a few minutes. Those men and women who gave their lives, who couldn't come back and play golf and go to the beach and have a picnic, and who left a giant void in their family and friends' lives. And I remind you that every day, there are 22 veterans that commit suicide per day in this country. We should not forget them. We should assist them. Let's get that number down. So on this Memorial Day, we will start it appropriately. First, the Pledge of Allegiance with the great John Wayne, followed by the National Anthem, Whitney Houston, one of the great renditions ever at the Super Bowl 25 in Tampa, and finally, Taps. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all.
on this Memorial Day weekend. May all those men and women who served and paid the ultimate price no longer with us, may they rest in peace, and may their memories live eternal. I would like to welcome to our Cigar Dave Show microphones a very uh, special friend of the Cigar Dave Show, Major General Dave Scott, United States Air Force, retired, also the owner-proprietor of the Bad Monkey, and uh, General Scott, once again, Many thanks for your wonderful hospitality and assisting us in lining up some truly great guests that we can share with our audience. Thanks, Dave. We love having you here. This is what, your fifth or sixth I think year? Fifth or sixth, yeah. Uh, it's always, I, I'm sitting here listening to the preamble to your show. It just makes me feel good. You set the right tone. So it's our honor to have you here in Ybor City at the Bad Monkey. Well, we appreciate it. And uh, we've also got Lieutenant Colonel Rob Schaefer, a, a Green Beret. I don't say former Green Beret because once you're a Green Beret, you're always a Green Beret. And uh, one of the owners of Horse Soldier Bourbon. And amongst the first, I think the first to lead. Now, Robert Mueller, if you're listening, <laughs> stay down, stand down. The first to lead Russian troops into war, into the war on terror. The first U.S. officer in history to ever lead Russian troops in combat operations, yes. Talk about that. That is fascinating. So when, uh, if you remember back during Kosovo and uh, British General, uh, I can't remember his name right now, but there was a British General three-star. Not and, Montgomery. Uh, that was WW2. Right. But uh, he... Wesley Clark at the time, who was the the NATO Supreme Commander, right. after the Russians seized, the, the Russians were in Bosnia at the time. They made a lightning move into Kosovo. They seized the airport at Pristina. And uh, General Wesley Clark told the British General, Jackson, that he wanted him to go in and kick the Russians out of that uh, airport. And General Jackson said, I'm not going to start World War III for you. And instead, uh, they sent me and my special forces team over there, essentially, to handle the Russians. And so we got the sector, which was called Kamenica at the time, and it was right on the border of Serbia. And at that time, the, the KLA, the, the folks over there called it the Uchika, they were constantly attacking still. And when the Russians moved in, they essentially they thought to themselves, well, you know, this is just kind of the same thing as the Bosnians because the Russians moved in there. They seized that airport to, to get a place at the table so that they could have a say in what happened in that, in, in, in that uh, international conflict. So the locals at the time, they had no idea what the Russians were going to do. They, all they knew was that the Russians were the bad guys, but our job there was to establish peace, was to make this this dangerous area into a, a, a very peaceful place again. So even though it was not technically a combat area, um, we were still the first special forces team in history to ever fire artillery in support of Russian troops and the first unit since World War II to have done so. And uh, at some point or another, we established a rapport with the Russians because we pressed upon them the idea that the most important thing was making sure that we established peace, that when we finally got some good intelligence from our side, I was able to go to that Russian commander and say to him, I, I can't tell you everything, sir, but um, I'd like to have 150 of your troops tomorrow. I'd like them all to be in this place. 
Uh, I'm going to send two of my Green Berets with each of your groups. We're going to set up uh, corridors, and we're going to take down, and we took down 12 objectives all at the same time. There was a lot of fighting. There were many nights there where we would go out with the Russian troops. They'd be in a BTR in front of us. And what's a BTR? BTR is a, it's one of their um, infantry carriers. It's a, it's a, it's, it's an armored infantry carrier okay. as it is with, with kind of like a tank, like we have Bradley's scan right. kind of thing. So they have a BTR-80 in front, a BTR-80 in the back, and we'd be in an unarmored Humvee in the middle, and we'd have our night vision goggles on. You could watch the tracers bouncing off the front BTR. You could watch the, the, the tracers, the bullets. When I say tracers, uh, when you're firing machine guns, you've got a bunch of normal bullets, and then you have a tracer, which is coated with phosphorus, so you can kind of see where you're aiming it. So... When you see a lot of tracers coming down range, you're only seeing like one out of four, one out of five bullets. So you'd see the tracers knowing that there were a lot of bullets bouncing off the, the, the vehicle right in front of us, right, right in the vehicle behind us, and nobody had ever aimed for us. But uh, that, was, that was the kind of thing that we were in right there. So we established a great rapport with the Russians, and then they essentially let us lead operations. And at the time, of course, nobody knew there were... Green Berets or Special Operations Forces in Kosovo, so they got all the credit for it, and then, of course, they looked like heroes, and once you do something like that, then it was Katie bar the door. It was pretty much anything we wanted at that point, and we took that area from being the one of the highest uh, and most dangerous places to very quickly, in just a couple of months, being a very, very safe place again. And how was working with the Russians? Uh, certainly must have been a little bit antagonistic at first, but obviously by the conclusion of the mission, you were all vodka drinking buddies, but what was it like at the beginning? Part of the great thing about being a Green Beret is you spend a lot of time with people from different cultures, and we, we are all taught a language. It's, it's, to be a Green Beret, you have to, to be able to speak at least one language fluently. That's kind of our you know, raison d'etre. It's, it's our reason for being there. And so having a Russian-speaking team means that we kind of already knew the culture, right? When I was a cadet, you know, I studied Russian history. I studied Russian culture. Uh, guys on my team were, were really big Russian speakers as well, too. So when you go in and you're talking to them originally, they expect you to kind of be like, you know, big tough guys. But they don't expect you to be able to, like, talk to them about Pushkin or things that really get to them right away. Like, I could sing Russian drinking songs to them better than they could. And that's because at the Defense Language Institute at DLI, right, they, we, we, have a, we have a Russian choir. Now, the word for choir in Russian is chor, right? So I was a big fan of the Ruski chor, right? So, <laughs> so but, but as crazy as it sounds, you know, then later when I was, you know, hanging out with a bunch of Russians drinking a lot of, of, of vodka, when I started singing, you know, traditional Russian songs to them. That you blew know, away, I'm sure. Yeah, it did. And, and so that's how you build rapport with them. Lots of different countries have a different way of building relationships, right? So here in the United States, you know, we play golf, right? You want to do business with somebody, you go play golf or you do something else. In the Scandinavian countries, you get naked and you get in a sauna with them, right? The idea there is that everybody is the same in a sauna when you're naked. And you go out and you roll in the snow and you do stupid things. But with the Russians, it's all about drinking vodka because they know that 
the kind of person you really are is going to come through after you've had a lot to drink. And if I ever had a superpower in my life, it was the fact that I was able to drink copious amounts of vodka and not get completely plastered. Now, it's not that they didn't try and kill me. First time I drank vodka with the Russians, I literally had alcohol poisoning the next day. But I learned very quickly not to do what Americans do at parties. Right? At an American party, what do you do? You, you stand around, you walk around, you drink, you maybe have a little you know, hors d'oeuvre or whatever. You don't do that at a Russian party. Russian party, you sit down, the table is laden with food, and it's all really fatty food. So when you go over the first time, you think, oh, you know, I'm in great shape. I'm not going to touch that stuff, all that fatty stuff. Oh, no, man. You learn very quickly that that's the way to a quick death and alcohol poisoning. Well, I'll tell you what. Here in the U.S., I like I prefer just getting together for a cigar rather than getting naked in Scandinavian countries and going into a sauna. It's much safer. And also, you've made the transition just like uh, uh, General Dave Scott, now the owner of the uh, Bad Monkey Military Bar. We are going to conduct the National Cigar Litation and libation ceremony on our Memorial Day observational remembrance show from the Bad Monkey Military Bar in Ybor City. With an unlimited and secure supply of pleasure sticks available for the general to enjoy, it's time for National Cigar Litation Maneuvers. And I welcome Yanko Maceda of uh, uh, Tabanero Cigars, just about three doors down here from the Bad Monkey in Ybor City, keeping the tradition of cigar, handmade cigar rolling alive here in the cigar city of Tampa. Yanko, you gave me this Maceda. Tell me about this cigar. Yes, sir. First, I wanted to thank you, everybody. The way you should share, it really make me feel the freedom of this great country. Thank you. Thank you very much, both of you, for the service. Uh, well, the cigar that we have today is a Toro, a Toro versus Matador. Uh, we were trying to kill that total and it's uh it's it's come to a next level because we add viso from jalapa so it's a little bit sweeter but it's still a medium body cigar and again it's always tested through a drop master made in the usa by cuban artisans especially right here in tampa florida and the wrapper on this that is ecuadorian sun grown ecuadorian beautiful a nice rosado dark uh, wrapper Thank you. cigar altering and highly sharpened leaf exposing device Actually, I grabbed a polio cutter, a single-edged guillotine from my uh, humidor just before I came over. Maximum BTU flame-throwing and heat-producing apparatus. Well, I got uh, this Bunsen burner from my buddies over at Alec Bradley. This is just, I'm telling you, you could, you could roast uh, hot dogs on this thing. Just uh, got a big container, giant flame, big tank. That's what I would use today. Cigar, Cigar pre-lightation checklist complete. No faults detected. Area clear of all enemies of pleasure. Approval to go throttle up in three, two, one. And as I toast the foot of this cigar, I will puff and rotate. Great draw. Mmm, nice flavor. And as we do that... Scotch, bourbon, and beer. Commence thirst-quenching libationary maneuvers. All right, Lieutenant Colonel Rob. Very quickly, in 20 seconds, tell me about the Horse Soldier bourbon I'm going to be enjoying here. So this is our most recent. It is a straight bourbon, which means it's been aged at least two years, but we age it three years, and it's a higher proof. It's 87, Ooh. and uh, as a result, it has been getting, well, here at the Bad Monkey, they just sold 17 bottles in the last week. We can't keep it in stock. It's going crazy. A lot of sharpness, a lot of oakiness on the palate. This is definitely geared towards a medium to fuller flavored cigar. This is not for amateurs. This is not for wussified beta males. 
This is for USDA-approved alpha males. This has got some nice octane in here. There's no question about it. General Dave Scott, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Schaefer, Green Beret, Yanko Maceda of Tabanero Cigars, we thank you. We will continue our special Memorial Day edition of the Cigar Dave Show from the Bad Monkey in Ybor City. Memorial Day is a time to reflect for those who fought for the USA and paid the ultimate price to ensure our freedom. From all of us at the Cigar Dave Show, we remember and thank you. In 1964, Jose O. Padron began rolling cigars bearing his name in modest surroundings with one guiding principle, always focus on quality, never on quantity. Nearly 40 years later, Padron cigars are recognized for their superior taste and majestic construction. The result of Padron controlling all aspects of the cigar making process, including planting their own seeds, growing and curing their own tobacco, and constantly supervising the rolling room. To Wall Street, it is called vertical integration. To the Padron family, it's called making great cigars. The Padron lines include the Padron 1964 Anniversary Series and the Padron Traditional line. All Padron cigars are wrapped in Nicaraguan sun-grown Habano tobacco, available in natural or maduro. Experience Padron. For your Padron retailer, call 1-800-453-5635. When Padron is on the band, quality is a matter of family honor. Surgeon General Warning. Tobacco use increases the risk of infertility, stillbirth, and low birth weight. This weekend died for the freedoms we enjoy today. The Cigar Dave Show would like to remind you that Memorial Day is observed, not celebrated. So while you enjoy the holiday weekend, never forget the sacrifices our soldiers made preserving our way of life. Special observance of Memorial Day today on the Cigar Dave Show, and we will be joined in just a moment. We'll play an encore interview with a fascinating man that we had the opportunity to speak with about three years ago at the Bad Monkey, the week of the Special Operations Forces Industry Conference coinciding with Memorial Day, Dr. Jim Mitchell, psychologist hired after the 9-11 attacks, hired by the CIA to develop an interrogation program uh, for Al-Qaeda detainees and enemy combatants. He has no love for Senator Dianne Feinstein, as you will hear, he did the interrogation of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Fascinating man. I know you'll enjoy this encore interview with Dr. Jim Mitchell. And it is my high honor and distinct pleasure to welcome a man who has written, uh, literally written the book on enhanced interrogation. He spent, uh, he was a contractor with the CIA, spent 22 years in the Air Force with the Air Force, Air Force Special Operations Command. He has personally interrogated 16 of the top terrorists in the world, all of the 9-11 terrorists, and KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, which helped us get Osama bin Laden. Jim Mitchell, 
who has spent uh, many years in the armed forces, wrote the book Enhanced Interrogation, Inside the Minds and Motives of the Islamic Terrorists Trying to Destroy America. Jim, I have seen you many times on Fox News, Fox and Friends, some of the other shows. Great honor to have you with us today on this special Memorial Day Observance Edition. Thank you for having me on. Jim, uh, let's start off first about your background. Before we get into uh, the enhanced interrogation and the incredible life that you have lived in the military, talk about your background. Where are you from? How'd you get in the armed forces? Well, I joined the armed forces in 75 as a bomb disposal guy, you know, EOD guy. And I, I, w I got interested in how terrorists think as a result of, you know, working with IEDs and working with other improvised devices, explosive devices. And I got out of the Air Force temporarily and got a Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of South Florida here in Tampa. So you were, I should call you Dr. Jim you can, Mitchell. You can call me anything you want to. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't care. You know? uh, anyway, so then I went back into the Air Force. Uh, and, and, and essentially, after my internship, went into special duty assignments and stayed in special duty assignments the whole way. Finishing up the last six years. Uh, as a member of uh, one of the special tactics squadrons attached to, to AFSOP. So that's, and then after I got out of that, since you asked me what I had done, uh, in August of 2001, I, I signed a personal services contract with the CIA. And then September the 11th happened, uh, and then they asked me to come on board and help them uh, with the uh, counterterrorist center, asked me to come on board and help them with their interrogations. Where are you from originally? Tampa, oddly enough. Oh, you're a Tampa. So you know all the history of cigars, and you know Ebor very well. I grew up here. I didn't realize that. So a uh, local boy uh, goes into the armed forces, interrogates some of the uh, baddest, worst terrorists in the world, and comes back home here. Yeah, we came home to uh, spend time with Kathy's father, my wife's father, who was in hospice. He was a Marine uh, that was in World War II, blown up on day five of uh, Iwo Jima, uh, served you know, honorably, and uh, when he got sick, we came back here to, so he wouldn't have to go into a home. And since we're really paying tribute to uh, the, really the heroes in our armed forces that are no longer with us, what was what was your father-in-law's name? Leon Oaks. Uh, Leon Oaks. He was a 105 gunner, and uh, his entire gunnery battery was killed except for him when uh, on day five of Iwo Jima, like I said, when the, the Japanese lobbed a mortar into the area where they had their 105 set up. Well, to Leon, we, we pay tribute to him. We remember him because we really know what the true meaning and significance of Memorial Day is, and we make sure that we spread that. And to those of you listening, as I said at the beginning of the show, we don't celebrate Memorial Day weekend. I am so offended when I see Memorial Day sales or people say Happy Memorial Day. We observe Memorial Day, and we need to do more in our schools. We should have a national, I believe, on Memorial Day for maybe one minute, a moment of silence at high noon and remember all those people that served in the military that died uh, young on the battlefield, that remain forever young, and those that served that are no longer with us. Jim Mitchell, Dr. Jim Mitchell, our guest, is the uh, author of the book Enhanced Interrogation. So tell us, and by the way, if I ask you anything that is sensitive or classified, just let us know. We're not 60 minutes here. We just want to try to ask questions okay. and share the information with our uh, alphas that listen coast to coast and around the world. So, Jim, tell us about 9-11. 9-11 occurs. You get uh, uh, called by the CIA. I did. Uh, initially, what happened is uh, they got a hold of a uh, resistance to interrogation manual that was based on our own special forces training 
a guy by the name of Ali Muhammad, who was an officer in uh, Special Forces, stole that manual, took it over to Al-Qaeda, uh, to the Middle East, gave it to the terrorists, and they developed a resistance to interrogation program around that. And so what happened is when the CIA got a copy of that, they asked me and a man by the name of Dr. Bruce Jessen to take a look at the manual because we had at that point something like 11 years experience with teaching our own people to resist interrogation, including the folks at the very tip of the spear. And so they said, okay, if they're following the things that they say they're doing in this book, how are these guys apt, apt to look and how are they apt to act if they're resisting interrogation? So in March of 2002, when they caught Abu Zubaydah, they asked me to deploy with the CIA interrogation team uh, and hook up uh, uh, and advise the CIA interrogators and the FBI interrogators who were questioning Abu Zubaydah. And when that didn't produce the intelligence that they needed, they eventually asked me if I would help them put together a program for interrogating Abu Zubaydah and reluctantly, I agreed to do that. Uh, and then they asked me if I would be willing to do the interrogations myself. And as you can imagine, because I was a psychologist and not an interrogator, I was a little bit reluctant to do that. But uh, Jose Rodriguez, is, uh, who was the chief of uh, CTC at the time, one of his lieutenants said to me, well, you've been around for 90 days. For 90 days, you've had briefing day after day after day about the threat. And we knew at that particular time that Al-Qaeda was planning a second wave of catastrophic attacks, possibly involving a nuclear weapon. And uh, because they knew, uh, uh, and, and I think George Tennant and both Jose Rodriguez had talked about this, uh, they knew that Osama bin Laden had met with the Pakistani scientists that were passing out the nuclear technology to all the rogue states. And Osama bin Laden had asked that scientist, how long will it take us to develop a nuclear weapon? And the scientists said, well, the tough part is actually getting the fissionable material. And KSM, I mean, and, uh, Osama bin Laden said, what if we've already got it? Ooh. And that shot shockwaves through the intelligence community. And, and the president said, we need to walk right up to the line of what's legal and do whatever is legal uh, to get information. And so I, I agreed to help them do these interrogations. And, uh, and that's when it kicked off. And so that was your first ex uh, interrogation. And, we, you know, we, I think there's a, we have this vision of, from television and movies what an interrogation is like. Sit across from a guy at a table, you give him a pack of cigarettes, you give him a drink, you try to establish a rapport. That's, that's in Hollywood. What's it really like sitting across from a terrorist murderer that wants to destroy our nation and our way of life? Well, it really depends on what he does, right? I mean, the way this, that we did these interrogations is the very first thing we would do is something I call the neutral assessment. And that is, I would just walk in there and say, you know, this is what we want to know. You know, we want to know these kinds of things. And, uh, and usually what happened, although not all the time, but usually what happened is they would say, we're not going to give you anything. Like KSM told me when the, I'm one of the people who questioned him initially, KSM said, soon, when I said, we want, to, we want information to stop operations inside the United States. We want to be able to stop these attacks. And he said, soon you'll know, you know. Uh, and, we, you know, we just couldn't live with that. And so, you know, what I would say to him at that point is the next time somebody comes to talk to you, they're going to ask you these questions. If you answer these questions, then nothing rough is going to happen. If you don't answer these questions, things will get much more difficult for you. And then 
what we would do in the case of when they were using enhanced interrogation is we would use those enhanced interrogations to shape their cooperation. So we'd pay particular attention to when they tried to cooperate with us, and when we did, we would stop the enhanced interrogations. So that what we did was basically, it's, it's almost like, although this is not quite accurate, it's almost like a dental phobia in the sense that if you've known anybody that's afraid of dentists, the time that they try to get away from it most is just before the next session. Right. Right? So what we would do is try to get those folks to start answering our questions before the next interrogation session. We would tell them what we would want to know, and then we would go in and give a, a neutral assessment the next time, and if they didn't, there would be a short enhanced interrogation. Then we would tell them what we're gonna ask them the next time, then we would come back and do a neutral assessment, and if they didn't answer, we would do, and eventually, they started trying to provide enough truthful information that they could stop the enhanced interrogation. And when they did that, we switched entirely to social influence. We tried to figure out what's the story this person is telling themselves about why they're doing this, and how can we frame the questions that we're asking them so that it fits naturally into this person's worldview. Okay, so two things. When we talk about the time frame, how long from a neutral interrogation to enhance, how long was this entire process? Well, Abu Zubaydah was subjected to 14 days of enhanced interrogation. And then up until uh, President Bush moved him to Guantanamo in 2006, there was another 1,609 days, I think, that he cooperated with us, more or less, right? So 1,609, almost uh, four years, four plus years. Yeah. Same thing with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had 21 days of enhanced interrogation. And then he had another 1,200 and something days where he was more or less. Now, he wouldn't provide any information about uh, UBL, but he really didn't have to because in lying to us, he revealed what, what was most important. And, and I should probably address that for your listeners since I said that. Hold that, hold that thought right there. We need to take a short uh, time out. And I can already tell that we are going to do a special... We'll have a special bonus segment with our guest, Dr. Jim Mitchell, the author of the book, Enhanced Interrogation Inside the Minds and Motives of the Islamic Terrorists Trying to Destroy America. Served 22 years in the United States Air Force Special Operations Command, contractor with the CIA. He interrogated 16 of the top terrorists on the American Most Wanted, all of the 9-11 terrorists, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. We will continue from the Bad Monkey, our Memorial Day observance maneuvers, honoring and paying tribute to the men and women of our forces on this Memorial Day edition of the Cigar Dave Show. Honoring those who gave their lives for the ideals of this great country. We proudly observe Memorial Day on the Cigar Dave Show. America is under attack. Basic freedoms, privileges, and acts that we would normally take for granted are disappearing each day, including the simple ability to enjoy a cigar. This is Glenn Loop, Executive Director of Cigar Rights of America, CRA. At a time when elected officials should be thinking about education, public safety, and creating jobs, they are actually thinking about smoking bans, new taxes, and regulations of historic proportions on premium cigars. The cigars that provide us with pleasure, relaxation, and fellowship are under attack. We have to stop it. 
That's why Cigar Rights of America was created, to work for a new political day for cigar enthusiasts across America, to roll back restrictive laws and defeat onerous taxes and regulations that impact everyone from your local cigar shop to your personal humidor. For the price of a few great cigars, be a part of this effort to protect your right to enjoy a cigar without excessive taxation and cumbersome legislation. Go to CigarRights.org. Let's tell the government we've had enough. Join now, CigarRights.org. In 2020, we have been delivering fantastic cigars to all members of the Cigar Dave Officers Club. And for May, we've got a fantastic selection entitled the Rocky Patel Sampler. We're featuring two Rocky Patel Edges and a Rocky Patel Sun Grown. First of all, the Rocky Patel Edge Light. It uses a magnificent Connecticut Ecuadorian shade-grown wrapper. It's a mild, mild, medium cigar, creamy with a little bit of sweetness. Then the Rocky Patel Edge Corojo. Fuller, more personality, bold with a wonderful Nicaraguan wrapper. And finally, the Rocky Patel Sun Grown. Medium in body with an Ecuadorian wrapper, Brazilian, Dominican, Nicaraguan fillers, a very balanced cigar. Become a member of the Cigar Dave Officers Club and get three cigars shipped to you in a Cigar Dave Officers Club pouch. $22.95 per month and you get amazing cigars. Go to CigarDave.com right now, click on Officers Club, and join the Officers Club today. We remember all servicemen and women who paid the ultimate price serving our country. We at the Cigar Dave Show thank all who serve, and we will never forget. Semper Paratus, the theme of the United States Coast Guard. Memorial Day observance maneuvers from the Bad Monkey as we are here in Ybor City, military bar owned by retired Major General David Scott of uh, formerly the Joint uh, Special Operations Command, JSOC, the Special Operations Forces Industry Conference going on this week in the Cigar City, uh, the home of Central Command at MacDill Air Force Base. Dr. Jim Mitchell, a interrogation expert, the author of the book Enhanced Interrogation Inside the Minds and Motives of the Islamic Terrorists Trying to Destroy America, uh, retired from 22 years of service in the Air Force. Dr. Mitchell, you left off talking about the next step in uh, interrogation, the questions, and let's pick it up from there. Okay, I think I left off talking about KSM. K- KSM, right, right. right. There, there were actually uh, five terrorists who were uh, helpful in helping us identify the courier. There were many more than that. There were about 20, but there were five that come to mind quickly as we're sitting here. The first tip-off we got about who the courier might be came from a man by the name of Amar Bellucci, who was one of the 9-11 uh, uh, bombers. Uh, he was KSM's nephew, and what he said after enhanced interrogations was that there was a man called uh, Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti who was a courier for UBL, and that his uncle, KSM, had told him that that was true. Well, we go back to KSM and ask KSM about it, and KSM denies that. He says, I didn't tell him that. So we go back to Omar Bellucci and say, he says, you didn't, he didn't tell you that. He goes, I don't know why he's lying, but he's lying. So what happened is the terrorists thought they had set up a secret communications uh, channel 
so they could secretly communicate with each other, and they didn't know that we could monitor it, and we were monitoring it. And after KSM was asked about Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti, the courier, he went into that secret communications channel and said, whatever you do, don't talk about the courier. Well, to the CIA interrogators and the analysts and the targeters, that identified that courier as somebody that was important. It may not lead to uh, uh, UBL, but we knew that he was an important guy. The next uh, detainee who provided information after enhanced interrogation was a man by the name of Hassan Ghul, who was a protege of KSM's. And before enhanced interrogations, what he said was, oh, you know, lots of three or four people, maybe five people who are working with UBL, delivering messages. Uh, we're not sure who they are. And this guy, you know, Kuwaiti could be one of them, but who knows. After enhanced interrogations, he says, Kuwaiti is definitely the guy. He delivered this message to Abu Faraj al-Libi, appointing him uh, KSM's replacement as the guy who's supposed to attack the West. Uh, and he does these other sorts of things for, uh, for uh, UBL. So we go to Abu Faraj al-Libi, and we ask him, and he said, oh, I've never heard of a guy like that. I mean, that man doesn't exist. Well, we knew from 15 or 20 other detainees that had been questioned in other places that a lot of those people knew that guy exists, and a lot of them knew that he worked with Abu Faraj al-Libi. So those lies really highlighted the importance of this guy, uh, uh, al-Kuwaiti. And then the final one that actually uh, was very helpful was a... Uh, a man by the name of Abu Yasser al-Jaziri. After enhanced interrogations, he told us that this uh, courier, Abu, uh, Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti, spoke native Arabic, but he had a speech impediment. And what he would do is he would uh, mix up uh, Pashto words with Arabic words in random ways, and that if you, even if you could speak both languages, you had a hard time following him because he sounded like he had a speech impediment. Well, that allowed, uh, through technical means, for them to identify the compound where that man lived, right? Uh, and then uh, some really brilliant uh, CIA analysts put together all these little pieces, uh, and they put together the, the uh, program that made sure that UBL was there, and then the SEALs were able to go in and shoot him. Let me ask you, when we define enhanced interrogation, we all think of waterboarding. What are some of the other enhanced interrogation techniques? And if there's something you can't tell us, then so be it. But give us some of the ideas of what, when we talk enhanced interrogation, define that. Well, I list them all in my book that were approved by the Justice Department. Enhanced interrogation techniques are a limited list of things that the Justice Department approved. And in most cases, you might not even think that they were very enhanced. There was an attention grab, for example. That's enhanced, uh, like grabbing a guy? Grabbing a guy up, up, <laughs> up close. Uh, there was walling, which is a which is a technique that was used. See what I, what we did was we said, listen, if you guys are uh, hell bent on using physical coercion against Abu Zubaydah, then you ought to use the same physical coercion that the Air Force and the other militaries have been using in their resistance to interrogation tools for the last 50 years, because they're not producing any kind of injuries and no kind of no lasting uh, mental harm. So the, the CIA did its due diligence with the uh, military organization that controls that stuff 
figured out what we could do. And there were 10 of them. I can't remember them all necessarily, but there was waterboarding, which was only used on three people. In fact, I waterboarded almost as many lawyers as I did terrorists. That's and, not a, you know what, lawyers, that's, you'd be given an award for that. You should be given a, a, a Nobel Prize for that. The last time, <laughs> you know, people talk about enhanced interrogations, um, skirt, you know, being close to the edge of being illegal, but it was ruled as legal by the uh, uh, Justice Department, not one time, but five times, including waterboarding. One time after I waterboarded an assistant attorney general before he made that decision. He said, I'm not going to make the decision. So you actually had to waterboard him to I prove. I had to waterboard him. And it, after that, he said, okay, fine. It, yeah, a few days later, he opined that it was He's okay. a brave guy. Yeah. The other techniques that are listed in my book are walling, uh, facial slap, uh, like I said, the attention, uh, attention grasp, uh, uh, some stress positions, but we tended not to use those, and a, and a couple of others. Uh, but, that, but if it's not on that list that was approved by the Justice Department, and there were many things that were done to detainees that Bruce and I didn't do that were not on that list, it's not an enhanced interrogation techniques. It's just something some guy made up on the spot, which he shouldn't have done. Well, just the mere fact when you stated that Obama, Osama bin Laden stated, well, what if we already have the nuclear material to make a, 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 a nuclear weapon? I guarantee you that sent shockwaves to every one of our alphas and lieutenants that are listening without question. We will have more fascinating conversation with Dr. Jim Mitchell, interrogated Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. After the 9-11 attacks in the next hour, we'll also be joined by Rear Admiral Brian Losey, who at the time was in charge of the Navy Special Warfare Command and Navy SEALs. It is a special encore amalgamation of our interviews over the last five years from the Bad Monkey Military Bar in the Cigar City of Tampa. And it coincides with not only Memorial Day, but the Special Operations Forces Industry Conference. For the last five years, we've conducted our Memorial Day observance with incredible guests. Stand by, because we have much more coming your way in the next hour. Hour two of this special Memorial Day observance of the Cigar Dave Show comes your way next. This is AMEN, the Alpha Male Entertainment Network. from Humidor 1A in the Cigar City of Tampa, Florida, USA. Welcome to the Cigar Dave Show, your weekly excursion into the world of cigars, spirits, and diversions. The cigar and pleasure-friendly hotlines are open. 877-DAVE-007. Now, fire up a cigar and pour yourself a cocktail. It's time. For the General, General Cigar, Cigar Day. 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 Memorial Day 2020. Certainly different, unique compared to previous Memorial Days because of the Chinese Communist Party Wuhan virus. And the CCP Wuhan virus has caused us to play encore excerpts from the past five years of our Memorial Day observance shows from the Bad Monkey Military Bar in the Cigar City of Tampa. Every year, the Special Operations Forces Industry Conference takes place the week before Memorial Day, and we have access to incredible guests. So today, we'll play some of those encore interviews. We have Dr. Jim Mitchell, a previously unheard interview 
that was a podcast. We never aired it on broadcast radio. We're going to do that today. Also, Rear Admiral Brian Losey, Naval Special Warfare Command Admiral, this hour of our Memorial Day observance of the Cigar Dave Show. We heard from all these senators saying we can't do enhanced interrogation. The the image that people have, certainly I had, is of Jack Bauer from the TV show 24, where he's slicing off enemy fingers, taking a knife, stabbing people in the leg, uh, you know, just doing things that are just way out there, and that is not the case. No, it's a misunderstanding of how, how they were applied. But that's the way that most people think of it, and I think actually that uh, mental image is what's driven a lot of the laws. You know, I w- before I talk about how it was actually done, one of the things I'd like to say is that because of the laws that were passed uh, in 20, well, in the uh, 2015, in 2016 Defense Appropriations Bill, uh, the local mall cop has more choices for how to conduct interrogations than the intelligence community. The intelligence community is limited to just what's in the Army Field Manual. And the Army Field Manual is publicly available online. It lists not only the techniques that can be used, but the thinking behind how these techniques are likely to work. You know, it's as if we're doing uh, the uh, uh, counter-interrogation training for the bad guys. Right. You know, if we make any changes, they're still required to post them for 30 days before the changes go into effect. It's crazy. Uh, it but, makes no sense whatsoever. And, and again, you'd think that President Obama would have looked and said, wait a minute. You're not chopping off fingers, and you're not you're not stabbing guys. You're not shooting them. You know what? What you tell me, if that's just the enhanced interrogation, we're fine. He should have changed the thing. Well, nobody when they decided to shut down the program, uh, the uh, Democrats and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence put out that uh, wrong-headed and um, uh, erroneous report they put out. They didn't talk to anybody in the CIA that had been part of that program. None of the directors. None of the uh, deputy directors, none of the people who had ran the clandestine service, uh, no one, none of the interrogators, none of the guards, no one. Uh, And they had uh, five years and $40 million to invest into uh, looking into that. There's a second report that was put out by that same committee, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, the minority report, and that report is actually, I think, accurate. It lists uh, 19 different, I think it's 19, it's either 18 or 19 different um, uh, benefits of the enhanced interrogation program, attacks that were stopped, people that were captured. Uh, so that was good. But what happened in the enhanced interrogations is if you had done them the way that Jack Bauer did what he did, then you would really have produced false information because under circumstances where you put people in the course of pressure and you ask them leading questions and you demand some kind of uh, uh, sort of a definitive answer, you can force them to say things that aren't true. But we didn't do that. What we did was try to get information from them before the next time. And this is the conversation I would have with the person. I would say, we want information to stop operations inside the United States. We know you don't have all of it, but we know you have some of it. We know that people have moved. We know that they've dumped their computers. We know that they've changed their email addresses. So it's relatively safe for you to provide us with that kind of information. So we need you to provide us with that kind of information. And if you do, nothing bad will happen to you. So we weren't telling them what we wanted to hear. We were leaving it wide open. And then there would be a session of enhanced interrogations after which we would say the next time we're going to ask you about this, 
And at some point before the next session started, they would start offering up little pieces of information. And we would always ask them, is this going to help us stop operations inside the United States? And if they said yes, nothing would happen. And we would sit there and talk with them until they began to resist again, right? So after about, I don't know, four or five days, they began to slowly, 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 and over a period of about two weeks, it got to the point where we could have a conversation like you and I are having now. They didn't tell us everything. Sometimes they lied to us. But it's foolish to think that we didn't know that they lied to us when they lied to us because after enhanced interrogations, when you lie to me, you're nervous about it in a way that you weren't nervous about it before, right? And so your body language tells me a lot more clearer that not necessarily that they're lying, but that you're uncomfortable for some reason. And uh, once inherent enhanced interrogations were over, we tried to put things within the context of that person's worldview. So, for example, one of the things that Abu Zubaydah said to me after enhanced interrogations, we didn't want to use enhanced interrogations on Al Nashiri. He's the guy who did the USS Cole attack, the Amir of the USS Cole attack right. that killed 17 sailors. So we went to Abu Zubaydah, who was cooperating with us at that point, and said, uh, honey, we don't want to do, we don't want to use enhanced interrogations on, uh, and he goes, oh, no, no, you must do this. You must do this for all the brothers. And we said, that sounds crazy to me. You're saying that we need to do this? And he said, you don't need to go. He said, if the brother provides you with information when he can continue to resist, God will punish him. He said, God does not expect me to, to lift cars or carry around mountains because he knows I can't do this. So when I've resisted to the best of my ability and I'm convinced that you can force me to provide the information, I don't have to resist every time. You can just ask me the questions and I can just answer them as you have specifically worded those questions, right? And so what we very quickly did is we learned with KSM, for example, to say at some point when it looked like he was uh, trying to figure out some way to provide just enough information to get us to stop, I said to him, Mukhtar, because he wanted to be called Mukhtar, which means the brain. I said, Mukhtar, I don't know about your God. You know, I don't claim to be an expert on Islam, but my God doesn't expect me to carry a burden that's too great for me to bear. He knows at some point I can't do that. I'm going to put it down. He said, my God feels the exact same way. And then we had a conversation very much like we had with Abu Zubaydah about the limits of what, how much he could resist. Now, this is a guy who two weeks earlier, when I asked him about operations inside the United States and said, soon you will know, in this haunty kind of ta uh, taunting way, who, who at that particular point, when I said, well, we want information to stop operations, he switched the way he was using those words and he said, soon you're gonna know. You know, uh, meaning that he was just about at the point where he could, you know, he was ready to start talking. And, and in fact, he did, you know. Uh, he provided quite a bit of information that he thought we wouldn't be able to put together as well as we were able to put it together. But it was very useful. We were able to stop that second set of uh, attacks. And Bali had a second set of catastrophic attacks planned. And KSM was funding them. Information from KSM allowed us to catch another person who allowed us to catch one of Hambali's relatives who allowed us to catch Hambali. You know, Hambali was just snatched off the street in some city, you know. And then we, from Hambali, we found out all the rest of the information and we were able to arrest all 17 of the people they had in training 
They had 17 or 18 people in training, some of them training hand-to-hand -hand combat because they knew they were going to have to fight the passengers. They weren't going to die willingly like the, some of the others had. And they knew they were going to have to fight the pilots. They had a group of people who were going to fly the planes. And their intent was to fly airplanes into the, into the tallest buildings in Los Angeles, Seattle, right, and Chicago. Correct. And, we, and every one of those guys was caught as a direct result of the enhanced interrogation program. And again, we've, we did hear about that, but those were things happening in real time as a result of the enhanced interrogation uh, dealing with these, with these terrorists. Jim Mitchell, Ph.D., Dr. Mitchell, author of the book Enhanced Interrogation, Inside the Minds and Motives of the Islamic Terrorists Trying to Destroy America, interviewed 16 of the top 10 terrorists on the American Most Wanted list, all the 9-11 terrorists, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, many others, spent 22 years in the Air Force, and we are continuing our special bonus interview segment uh, during our Memorial Day observance maneuvers from the Bad Monkey here in Ybor City, a military theme bar during the Special Operations Forces Industry Conference going on this week in the Cigar City of Tampa. And, and I have to tell you, Jim, I am sitting here listening to every word that you are saying in complete, utter amazement. I'm not speechless, because that's never happened to me, but pretty close. And it is fascinating that you were there, you lived it. And so when you see these people on Capitol Hill or you hear these pundits on television, by the way, I've seen you many times on Fox News, Fox and Friends, the other Fox shows several times a week, you must look and shake your head and say, these people don't know what the hell they're talking about. Well, they might know what they were talking about if they had bothered to talk to anybody in the CIA. You know, Mike, uh, General Michael Hayden, who was the CIA director, and right. the only man that's been at that time who had been both the NSA director and the CIA director, said that the liberals were entitled to their opinions about the effectiveness of the enhanced interrogation program, but they weren't entitled to their own set of facts. Right. And um, one of the things that, if you read the Senate Select Committee uh, report from Dianne Feinstein carefully, is what she's saying is the CIA didn't have to use any information from uh, uh, the enhanced interrogation program. But the CIA says that's not true. It's just not true. And in fact, in their rebuttal to her, which is available online, right? You can get the Senate Select Committee report, the minority report, and you can get the rebuttal from the CIA in a book called Rebuttal, right? Along with several essays from uh, CIA directors and other high-level people in the CIA. And read it for yourself. I say, don't take my word for it. Don't take Feinstein's word for it. Read what the CIA has to say about it. Read what the Senate Select Committee Minority Report has to say when they lay out the specific examples of things that program helped stop. Jim, in your assessment, would we have stopped the airplane hijacking plot from the West, uh, West Coast over the Pacific if you didn't have inter enhanced interrogation techniques? Well, the weasel answer is it's unknowable, right? That's what a weasel would say. But in my personal opinion, we wouldn't have stopped it because the people that we needed to stop it were stopped as a result of KSM. I can give you an example of something that uh, Senator Feinstein's committee says doesn't count, right? We wanted to catch Hassan Ghul. Hassan Ghul was a, uh, a, a, a protege of KSM. So we went to Abu Zubaydah, and we were getting all these intelligence requirements saying, ask Abu Zubaydah where Hassan Ghul is. And we would sit down like we are with you, and we'd say, honey, where's Hassan Ghul? And he'd say, oh, I don't want to tell you. I don't want to know. I don't want to speculate. 
and the CIA was going, go back to enhanced interrogations, go back to enhanced interrogations. But, you know, that's not the way Dr. Jessen and I operate. We said, what is it that's making you uncomfortable with providing that information? He said, I'm afraid that what you're going to do is you're going to go there, he's not going to be there, and then you're going to blame me. You're going to say I'm lying, and then things will get worse for me. I don't want to do that. I don't want to speculate because I have no idea where he actually is. And at that point, we said to him, how would you go about finding him? I mean, suppose I took those handcuffs off you, walked you to the door, and you had to go to wherever you thought he was, and you wanted to find him. How would you find him? He said, oh, well, that's easy. I would just go find this particular man in Pakistan. He always gets Hassan Ghul's rooms. He'll know exactly where Hassan Ghul is. <laughs> find that guy. He's his landlord. He can, take, he can take you to that guy's apartment. And that's what they did. They went to this guy. After a little persuasion from the Pakistanis, uh, he took them to Hassan Ghul's apartment. Hassan Ghul wasn't there. But you know who was there? Ramsey bin Ashiba, one of the other 9-11 uh, plotters, right? And Feinstein says that doesn't count because we didn't go there to catch bin Ashiba. We went there to catch Hassan Ghul. That's the level of... That, that is such warped liberal thinking. It is beyond being fathomable. And, and her response should have been, we don't care who you get. You're getting guys that are enemies of America. Grab them. We got five other terrorists at the same time out of that same raid. You know, and Ramsey Beneshiba helped us catch uh, uh, KSM, his uncle. I mean, not his uncle, but helped us catch KSM. You know, so uh, he, he, I don't know what to, I don't know. You have to have some sort of special set of glasses to be able to look at the data as it unfolded and decide that this doesn't count. This does count. Were it's you a, ever asked to testify no. in front of those committees? No. In fact, one of the things that I did do. Uh, at some point was meet with the Senate Select Committee staffers at their request uh, prior to shutting down the program, prior to this uh, investigation. And, and along with a couple of attorneys, Dr. Jessen and I answered every question they had about the program. And most of the people who were in that meeting weren't asking me questions about, you know, how many times was it legal and all this other kind of stuff. Was it effective? They wanted to know what it was like to interrogate these guys. The same thing that most people are interested so in. So the CIA today, in your estimation, is severely handicapped in their ability to get information leading to the catch and prevention of any terrorist attack. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I think what makes it rougher for them is that while we're cutting, while we're not catching people and asking and interrogating them anymore, right? At the same time, we're dialing back the kind of technical collection that we used to be able to do, the kind of surveillance that we used to be able to do after 9/11, in such a way that it makes catching people and asking them questions, because there are things that you can get from the pocket litter a person has, or what's on their computer hard drive, or what they tell you about their intentions that you'll never get from a photograph, you know? Just never get it from a photograph. And let me ask you that today, as you see President Trump, you see now that Osama bin Laden's son has come out saying that he wants to revenge the death of his father. He wants to plan another attack. Looking at that, knowing what you're telling us, knowing that we are the CIA is limited, that should absolutely strike fear in every single American. 
Well, my thought about, I, I mean, I know that guy because he's been around for a long time. He was a kid. He was raised in the jihad. You know, he spent a lot of time in Iran. Uh, he was raised uh, inside of this terror group. So he's been, he's, and he's trying to establish this brand where <clears throat> what he does is he uses his father as a recruiting tool to get other jihadists to uh, join the fight. So what the difference between Al-Qaeda and ISIS is that <clears throat> Al-Qaeda still dreams of bringing America down uh, using catastrophic terror attacks. And so I think with him, you have to be uh, concerned that he's going to try to mount some kind of a, a catastrophic attack. You know, one of the things that uh, KSM told me, because we, you know, we, we were wanting to know, what were you thinking when you attacked us? I mean, what did you think America was going to do when you flew those planes into the building? <clears throat> and what he told me was, and Dr. Jessen, was we thought you would do what you always did. You know, we thought you would turn tail and run. In 1983, uh, the Marine barracks in Lebanon was blown up. Reagan pulled out. He turned tail and run. You know, in 1998, two U.S. embassies were bombed in Africa, uh, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, right. and uh, Nairobi, Kenya. Clinton turned it over to the FBI, fired a couple of missiles at uh, abandoned training camps. Right. Nothing of consequence happened. You turned tail and run. We attacked. The USS Cole killed 17 sailors. You turn it over to the FBI. One of Clinton's senior uh, statesperson says, it doesn't rise to the level of requiring a military response, killing Americans. He said, so I thought you would do what you always did. I thought you would turn tail and run. And then he looks down at his, at his he, then he looks down and he puts his hand on his head and he looks back up at me and he says, how was I supposed to know that cowboy George Bush would say he wanted us dead or alive and invade Afghanistan to find us. That's exactly what he said. It, it really is, as we look back now, unbelievable that Clinton, we had Osama bin Laden. We look at the bombings, the first few bombings of the World Trade Center, and we did nothing. And there are other people around the world saying, and I'm sure the Israelis saying, you better watch these guys. These guys are to be reckoned with. You cannot take these guys lightly. And we found out on September 11, 2001. Yeah, there were recommendations from the intelligence organizations that they take him out, you know, uh, before that went to Clinton that he didn't act on. Now, in the subtitle of your book is in, uh, Enhanced Interrogation, the subtitle Inside the Minds and Motives of the Islamic Terrorists Trying to Destroy America. Is there one? We all know they hate America. We all know that uh, they think they're going to get their virgins. We all know that they think that uh, that uh, Muhammad calls them to do this. But is there any other common denominator, common thread that you found with all these terrorists that you in, in, uh, interrogated? Yeah, they're all Islamists. They all believe that Western democracy and true Sharia cannot coexist. Because in a democracy, you get to vote on which laws you follow. You get to change laws. Right. And in their mind, everything that is acceptable was decided 1,400 years ago in the perfect words and deeds of the prophet and in the Quran. And so in their minds, Western democracy is, is unclean. Our indulgences are an obscene insult to, the, to uh, Allah and the prophet Muhammad, and it needs to be eradicated. 
Dr. Jim Mitchell, the uh, author of the book Enhanced Interrogation, Inside the Minds and Motives of the Islamic Terrorists Trying to Destroy America. He personally interviewed 16, interrogated 16 of the top terrorists on the American Most Wanted list, all the 9-11 terrorists. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, instrumental in preventing numerous other terrorist attacks against our homeland. Contractor with the CIA, spent 22 years in the Air Force with the... Uh, towards the end of his career, Air Force Special Operations Command. And uh, Jim, it really has been an honor to have you. Extremely fascinating. Thank you for having me on. Dr. Jim Mitchell, interview extraordinaire, psychologist interrogated Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. As you heard, no fan of Senator Dianne Feinstein, but what he did on behalf of a very grateful nation. Now, coming up, we've got Rear Admiral Brian Losey. We talked to Rear Admiral Losey, yeah, it's probably about uh, two, three years ago, in charge at the time of the Navy Special Warfare Command, Navy SEALs. Fascinating conversation with him. Loves cigars. We continue our Memorial Day observance on The Cigar Dave Show. those who gave their lives for the ideals of this great country. We proudly observe Memorial Day on The Cigar Dave Show. In 1964, Jose O. Padron began rolling cigars bearing his name in modest surroundings with one guiding principle, always focus on quality, never on quantity. Nearly 40 years later, Padron cigars are recognized for their superior taste and majestic construction. The result of Padron controlling all aspects of the cigar making process, including planting their own seeds, growing and curing their own tobacco, and constantly supervising the rolling room. To Wall Street, it is called vertical integration. To the Padron family, it's called making great cigars. The Padron lines include the Padron 1964 Anniversary Series and the Padron Traditional line. All Padron cigars are wrapped in Nicaraguan sun-grown Habano tobacco, available in natural or maduro. Experience Padron. For your Padron retailer, call 1-800-453-5635. When Padron is on the band, quality is a matter of family honor. Surgeon General Warning. Tobacco use increases the risk of infertility, stillbirth, and low birth weight. Whether a soldier died in war or simply trying to preserve peace, their sacrifices should never be forgotten. We at the Cigar Dave Show are humbled by the sacrifices young men and women have made every day to preserve our freedoms. We will never forget you. I said earlier during the special edition of the Cigar Dave Show that we have a special guest, not a special, a incredibly special guest, and I am not lying. It is my distinct honor and privilege to welcome to this special edition of the Cigar Dave Show, Rear Admiral Brian Losey, Commander, Naval Special Warfare Command, Coronado, California. 
one of the groups he oversees, the United States Navy SEALs. And Admiral Osi, it is an honor to have you. I appreciate you stopping by. You're in town for the special uh, operations industry conference uh, going on here in Tampa. Of course, home to MacDill Air Force Base and, uh, and Central Command Special Operations. And welcome to the Cigar City of Tampa. And you have a cigar in your hand. You're one of us. Thanks so much, Cigar Dave. It's nice to be here. Uh, Admiral, you've been headed... Brian, please. Well, I can't do that. i got to call you Admiral Brian. How's that? Uh, your career is just absolutely incredible. I'm looking. It would take me a half an hour to go through your uh, resume here, but I'll let you tell us about your background, how you got in the, uh, in the Navy, and, and your incredible career. Yeah. Hey, Dave, it's not, nothing about my career other than I've been serving with great and wonderful people for 32 years uh, and 36 years total in the military. So um, this weekend... Uh, and the start of this weekend tonight is all about the service and sacrifice of the people that we all serve with uh, that represent America. So I appreciate uh, uh, the opportunity to talk to you and your audience uh, and to convey our appreciation for their support for all the people that have served uh, and have sacrificed, not just those people, but also their families. And Admiral, I, I want to ask you, uh, the U.S. Navy SEALs certainly synonymous with some incredible missions. And as you said, you serve amongst great uh, men and women who, uh, you know, we always say the greatest generation, World War II, but they're still here today. Yes, they And are. you see them. But tell us about uh, what the biggest challenges you face right now. Certainly, we're in a war on terror. The world is a hot spot. But tell us about the biggest challenges you face in charge of Naval Special Warfare Command. Wow. So I think... Um you know, our biggest challenge really is to make sure that we're taking care of our people. Our people are, are the most important resource that we have. Uh, our people are our flagship weapon system. Uh, our people are what get the job done. So making sure that we create an environment, a uh, resource for them properly, uh, enable them to complete their mission uh, and serve America uh, in the way that, uh, that America needs to be served uh, is the biggest challenge. Making sure that uh, uh, that we communicate well with uh, with our superiors, with Congress, uh, so they understand uh, what we're trying to do, uh, how we view uh, the situations in the different conflict uh, conflict spots in the world, uh, and then and then we move out uh, and get things done. This isn't unique to the Navy SEALs. It's not unique to special operations or the Navy, but it is the whole of everyone who serves, uh, whether they're in police departments, fire departments, uh, public servants. We're all working together. And just some of your background, Admiral Losey, uh, you graduated, master's degree in national security strategy from the National War College, graduate of the Defense Language Institute, the Armed Forces Staff College, and Air Command Staff College. Uh, your assignments have been uh, uh, all over the world. Uh, Deputy Commander, Naval Special Warfare Task Group, U.S. 6th Fleet, Maritime Operations Officer, Deputy Chief of Current Operations in the Joint Special Ops Command, U.S. 7th Fleet Special Warfare Officer at USS Blue Ridge, uh, served in the Executive Office of the President as a Director of the National Security Council staff, bridging two administrations. What administrations did you serve? I served under President Bush and President Obama uh, at the NSC. And that must have been a unique experience, being at the highest levels of, uh, of this, uh, not only the, the nation, but of what goes on in the world. It was indeed a privilege, uh, but very different from serving with troops. Which did you prefer? <laughs> I know the answer. I know the answer <laughs> already. Okay, then I won't have to answer it. Uh, with that's, the troops. That's pretty, I mean, with, 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 with the troops. And, and yeah. uh, So tell us your background. Tell with us the, uh, when you started in the Navy. Well, I grew up in an Air Force family. My dad was a, a career NCO in the Air Force. Uh, my wife served in the Navy. She did 10 years as, a, as an NCO as well. 
Um, I mean, we come from a service background. Both my kids serve uh, in the United States Coast Guard today, uh, and I'm very proud of them. Uh, I'm proud to be a part of a, of a large organization, the Department of Defense, uh, where, where we all are oriented towards the same kinds of problems. It is all about the people. Uh, the assignments, the more words you use to describe whatever, whatever it is I did in the past really are, are kind of irrelevant. It's been serving with great people for over three decades and well, being led by great people, I might add. Was there one person that uh, was involved in leadership that had uh, a big effect on you, a mentor, if you will? <laughs> I've, had, I've had many. Uh, and in fact, I don't, I don't necessarily learn. I learn from, uh, from folks uh, junior to me as well as senior to me. Uh, every person has something to give and something to get. And so, uh, you know, I could single out some individuals, but that wouldn't be fair to, uh, to 32 years uh, worth right. of working with, with great folks everywhere. Um, you know, everybody's on a path of growth. Uh, you know, there's people you change over time. Uh, I'm not the same guy. Uh, yeah, I've learned a lot of good stuff, I think, in, on how to take care of people. Uh, and that's been an evolutionary process. So uh, I credit everybody that I've served with in 32 years. Give us an idea of what... Uh an average day is like as commander of Naval Special Warfare Command. From the time you get up to the time you sleep, because I think people would be fascinated because I'm sure you are bombarded with information nonstop. Okay, well, I'll give you a quick snippet of what, what it is that we're responsible for doing. Uh, basically, recruit, assess, select, equip, train, certify for deployment and program for a five-year uh, five time frame, uh, all the systems that we need to accomplish our mission on the battlefield. Uh, again, our most important resources are people, so how we select our folks, who we recruit, how we assess, move them into different pipelines, uh, how we continue to evolve them into leaders and folks that can, that can take care of larger and larger tasks is really the coin of our realm. Uh, it is all about people, and good leadership should do more than produce an organization that's well-led. It should produce more good leaders, and that's what we're about, producing leaders. So give us an idea of what the average day is like. <laughs> it always starts off with PT. Got to get out, get a run in, get a bike in, get a lift in. And in Coronado, uh, California, that's not the most difficult place to really have to do it. No, it's a wonderful place. Yeah, but, you know, every place has, been, uh, uh, has had its uh, positive features. But I am a West Coaster at heart, uh, and, I, and I, do, uh, I do enjoy where we're at right now. And you're from where originally? Uh, originally from Tacoma, Washington. Oh, you're from Tacoma? Pacific Northwest, yeah. Excellent. Seattle, Tacoma, SeaTac area. Very nice. Been at Tacoma a couple of times. Very nice uh, part of the country. <laughs> uh, so... What do you think, it, it, when, when you got the job, when you were promoted to this job, what was the biggest challenge when you walked into the office for the first time yeah. with the command? The biggest challenge every day is to do, to do the best that I can to, uh, to make a positive difference for the folks that, uh, that I serve with. Um, you know, because of the position, I get, a, I get an opportunity to influence uh, how we're resourced, uh, to make a difference for the folks that are on the deck plates actually doing the work. So... Uh, the work that I do is different than the work that, uh, that folks that are in contact with the enemy do, uh, and I've never forget that, uh, that, that everything that I do or don't do has some influence uh, across the force. And so that's what keeps me motivated. That's our, our biggest challenge, um, and I love it. Special guest is Rear Admiral Brian Losey, Commander, Naval Special Warfare Command, also oversees the United States Navy SEALs. Uh, Admiral, we're in a continued war on terror. It doesn't end. It's 24 hours. Your job is 24 hours. Uh, always on call. The phone rings. You've got to be there to take it. 
as we look out the next couple of years, what is the biggest challenge? I think building depth in the network, the global network that's already been established of partners, uh, not just special operators, not just Department of Defense, uh, but our regional and host nation military counterparts around the world. Uh, beyond that, uh, fitting into a whole of government approach uh, as our government uh, seeks to, to create conditions that produce security and stability around the world. You know, the root causes of insecurity and instability that brought us 911. Uh, if they've been mitigated at all, have only been mitigated to a certain extent. Uh, certainly not enough to stop uh, all the all the things that are going on. Right. Anybody can see that out there. So again, going back to the importance of people, our ability to relate with our partners, our ability to produce effects with them, uh, to seek understanding and, and recognize that uh, sometimes we have different viewpoints. Uh, this is part of what we work into training our force. There's folks that can communicate, uh, that can operate in small groups independently and still achieve uh, our president's desired effects. And I would say that uh, being an admiral today is probably different than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago in World War II, where the enemy isn't so defined. It's not like you see them in uniform. It's uh, different enemies around the world. Uh, and it, it, it's not where you're fighting one country or one group. This is around the world, and got to make sure we keep it off our own soil. It is that. You know, and, and in fact, we still have to be able to address the worst case uh, or the traditional case of, uh, of traditional uh, military threats of near-peer adversaries that operate uh, in ways that we're used to from, from previous world wars and conflicts. But indeed, today you have groups of individuals that are not associated with nation-states that are super-empowered through technologies and ideologies uh, to take actions, and, and it's challenging to deal with them through, uh, through the normal mechanisms. And so... Uh, it is a complex operating environment, one where we really haven't been able to shed some of the more traditional responsibilities. So I think the load has increased, uh, and with that, uh, the ability to empower uh, and trust our people, uh, trust the training that we give them uh, to go out and take care of business that needs to be done. So, you know, you, you have uh, generally a, perhaps a view that, that senior guys direct a lot of things, and I'll tell you that I spend most of my time empowering uh, folks and providing resources so that they can get the job done. Because they're in the contact patch, they're the rubber that meets the road, and that's where the business gets done. As uh, you know, overseeing U.S. Navy SEALs, I would assume that while you're based in Coronado, California, your job is global in nature. So wherever the SEALs are, you know where they are, you're involved. That is, in fact, we, we produce a product. I'm a producer again. Uh, you know, we produce a wonderful product, I think, and it is for global utilization and for operations in a complex world. We had a chance to talk to some other uh, members of uh, Special Operations and some Navy SEALs. And one of the things that's interesting, it's not just about, and I said, guns and grenades. It's also humanitarian missions. That Americans, the American Armed Forces are the first. When there's disaster, whether it's Nepal, whether it is a tsunami, whether it's an earthquake, we're front and center. That's what uh, Americans do, and that's certainly uh, something that I think tends to get overlooked. That's right. Again... Dave, back to the human dimension. You know, these are these are people that are in these rough spots of the world. Uh, these are people, vulnerable populations that are in contact with violent extremists. Uh, we have to be able to provide more value than just security, uh, more than just bringing guns, but we have to be able to meet basic human needs. That's not what, what we do as Navy SEALs, but it's what we do in coordination with, with the interagency and with other governmental partners is to make sure that basic human needs are being met and humani uh, humanitarian assistance is being provided and that goodwill is generated from that. Tell us, a lot of travel involved? Are you traveling the world? I, you know, I travel uh, as I need to. 
the guys doing the business and the gals doing the business are the ones that really are doing the travel. I travel as I need to to, right. to gain perspective or to gain inputs on, on things that need to be done. Do you get the reports from the front lines so that when things need to be changed, you want to know about them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what we do. Good news and bad news. Always. Yeah. Always. There is no good news or bad news. There's only timely and accurate news that we can, we can form, form uh, solutions to. There you go. And uh, I know you're in town for the Special Operations Industry Conference, and we're here at the Bad Monkey, and, and we're commemorating Memorial Day in all those uh, 1.3 million men and women who served in our armed forces. And I always say that you don't celebrate Memorial Day, we observe Memorial Day. And on, right. on Monday, it's, it's imperative that we remember all those because a lot of sacrifices that are made and uh, sometimes when people are out playing golf or throwing a burger on the grill, that's really not what Memorial Day is all about. Well said, Dave. I couldn't agree with you more. And tell us about your love of cigars. <laughs> that's an easy question. Well, I'm, you know, I'm enjoying a cigar here at Bad Monkey. That's right. Uh, the proprietor of whom I've, I've served with for three decades, and he gave over four decades of his life to serving the nation, so I can't think of a better way to observe Memorial Day, or at least the start of it, uh, this Memorial Day weekend, than being here with you all. And when you came in, did you ever think you'd be smoking cigars at a place called the Bad Monkey? I, You know, I had visions about doing that, <laughs> and, and the visions were realized. Well, I'll tell you, Major General David Scott has been a wonderful host and uh, also served his country with distinction, uh, as you have as well. And I cannot tell you what an honor it is and privilege to have you on today on our special Memorial Day edition. Rear Admiral Brian Losey, Commander, Naval Special Warfare Command, also oversees the U.S. uh, Navy SEALs, and we know the outstanding work that they do, much of which we may not know, but they're always there in the background, ever-present, 24-7, 365, around the globe. Rear Admiral... Uh, pleasure having you here in the Cigar City. Enjoy those cigars. I gave you some uh, Gurkha Classic Cigar Havana blends, so I hope wherever your travels take you, you'll enjoy it. Thanks, Dave. And for the IG, we have to note here that the total value of those cigars is less than $20. That's ex- exactly correct. i got to take one back then. <laughs> I will take one back, and they will be less than $20. No question. <laughs> God bless America. <laughs> Absolutely right. Uh, Rear Admiral Brian Losey, Lieutenants, the final and concluding segment of this special Memorial Day tribute show comes your way next. Memorial Day is a time to reflect for those who fought for the USA and paid the ultimate price to ensure our freedom. From all of us at the Cigar Dave Show, we remember and thank you. In 2020, we have been delivering fantastic cigars to all members of the Cigar Dave Officers Club. And for May, we've got a fantastic selection entitled the Rocky Patel Sampler. We're featuring two Rocky Patel Edges and a Rocky Patel Sun Grown. First of all, the Rocky Patel Edge Light. It uses a magnificent Connecticut Ecuadorian shade-grown wrapper. It's a mild, mild, medium cigar, creamy with a little bit of sweetness. Then the Rocky Patel Edge Corojo, fuller, more personality, bold with a wonderful Nicaraguan wrapper. And finally, the Rocky Patel Sungrown, medium in body with an Ecuadorian wrapper, Brazilian, Dominican, Nicaraguan fillers, a very balanced cigar. Become a member of the Cigar Dave Officers Club and get three cigars shipped to you in a Cigar Dave Officers Club pouch. $22.95 per month, and you get amazing cigars. Go to CigarDave.com right now, click on Officers Club, and join the Officers Club today. Hi, I'm Rocky Patel. 
After 15 years of hard work, I'd like to introduce you to the Rocky Patel 15th anniversary cigar made at our factory in Esteli, Nicaragua. This cigar showcases a beautiful, oily Habano wrapper from Ecuador. Fillers from Esteli, Jalapa, and Condega make up a rich, complex, spicy taste with a lot of full flavor. The Decade, another one of our masterpieces. Made in Honduras, beautiful Ecuadorian Sumatra wrapper with secret fillers. It received a 95 rating, one of the highest rated cigars ever in Cigar Aficionado. This medium to full bodied cigar is rich, complex, yet elegant and well balanced. 15 years ago, they thought we'd never make it in the business. 10 years ago, they thought we'd never last. Five years ago, they started paying attention. Now, we're right where we belong, in your hand. So enjoy the 15th anniversary and the decade these cigars will deliver. Whether you're enjoying a good barbecue, hanging out with friends, or traveling this holiday weekend, remember to take time to honor and remember all those who gave their lives for the freedoms we enjoy today. At the Cigar Dave Show, we believe every day should be Memorial Day. On Monday, Memorial Day, let me give you the proper flag etiquette. The flag should be flown at half-staff from Sunday, or correction, from sunrise until noon only. So on Monday, Memorial Day, fly your flag at half-staff from sunrise until 12 noon. Then at 12 noon, raise the flag briskly to the top of the staff until sunset in honor of our nation's battle heroes. No regulations existed for flying the flag at half-staff, but in 1954, March 1, 1954, President Eisenhower issued a proclamation on the proper times. We ask that you follow that on Monday. And when you do raise it at noon, take a moment and remember all those veterans that laid down their lives for our freedom. Great story. We talked to you about a month ago about Captain, maybe longer, six weeks ago, Captain Tom Moore in Great Britain. Two months ago... He became a national treasure in the UK by walking 100 laps of his garden in front of his garden before his 100th birthday. And at the time, his daughter challenged him just to walk a little bit. And he said, I'm going to walk for my 100th birthday 100 times. Well, the next thing you know, he said, I'm going to try to raise some money for the National Health Service in Britain. Well, he raised more than a couple of bucks. He raised almost $40 million dollars. People pledged money for every lap that he took. There was a big GoFundMe page, raised almost 40 million U.S. dollars for the National Health Service of Great Britain. Well, here's the great news, is that, number one, he's been made an honorary colonel. Two, he is going to be knighted. So he will be known as Sir Captain Colonel Tom Moore. I, we'll just call him Sir Colonel Tom Moore. So a long ash snappy salute to honorary Colonel Tom Moore. 100th birthday raised $40 million, a national hero in Great Britain. Of course, we remember all the fallen brave of World War II and every other conflict. And appropriately, we pay tribute to this great country, America, with one of the all-time great singers, one of the all-time great songs. God bless America with the great Kate Smith, 
And whenever you hear this song, I ask that you rise, hand on your heart, and let's pay tribute to America. out the rendition of God Bless America better than the great and late Kate Smith. It is certainly an unusual Memorial Day weekend with the CCP Wuhan virus in our midst, but that should not stop us on Monday from properly observing, observing Memorial Day. Cigar Dave, the general saying, Mayor Humidor always be full. Mayor Cutter always be sharp. Mayor Ashby extra, extra long. Semper Delictatio. Always pleasure. Long live the Alpha. Make America great again, again. Screw the enemies of pleasure and screw the Chinese Communist Party and screw the CCP Wuhan virus. On Monday, I ask on behalf of a grateful nation that you remember our fallen brave. May they all rest in peace. May their memory be a blessing. God bless them all. Remember the true meaning of Memorial Day on Monday and observe our fallen brave.